Linda McHenry, host of The Writer's Voice. And my guest today is novelist Dale T. Phillips. He's a technical writer, in addition to writing mysteries, and he's written more than 70 short stories and poetry, all kinds of nonfiction. How the heck are you, Dale? Hi, fine, thanks. Well, uh, productive these days because it keeps my mind focused and off the uh, horrible you know, dumpster fire that is the rest of the world. This is true. And books are a good escape from that. Now, you just had a release in March, Neptune City. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that before we go on and talk about all kinds of other interesting things? Yes. Well, that was an idea that I had been kicking around. And what happens is, unfortunately, I get to working on too many things that I wouldn't <laughs> call it uh, ADHD, but I would call it I get distracted easily. So squirrel, okay, over there. So I was working on three books for the last two years. I finally got one finished and said, great, now we can get to the other ones. But then this other book came and popped up last fall. And so I got most of that done, but again, could not finish. And then the whole plague hit. Mm -hmm. And after about a month of depression and just, just complete blackness and despair and not being able to do anything, I said, you know what, the only cure for this, which has been in the past, is work, is focus and work and, and getting things out. So I buckled down, finished that, got that done and out and said, oh, okay. And that again, uh, success leads to more success and getting something done leads to wanting to get more done. So then That's I just it. pushed forward and started doing a lot more. Well, and I think for us writers, most of us tend to be introverts and we tend to like to be left alone. And I kind of have looked at the pandemic with the awfulness that's there. Instead of focusing on that, I'm trying to focus on the fact that it's giving me more time to do other things that I wouldn't be able to do. Just so. I was being uh, quite distracted. And this is forcing a writer to confront the excuses <laughs> that they've always put up for not having the time to write. This is it. Because I'm too busy with the rest of life. Right. And now you don't have that excuse. You have been a technical writer for a very long time. Over 30 years, yes. Yeah. Like me, I think you, you, you know, you'd rather write fiction and do other stuff, but that doesn't always pay the bills. Very and much the so. technical writing does that. So it's sort of a chicken and an egg thing, isn't it? Very much so. Well, I got into technical writing because I was writing some uh, humorous columns for a historical newsletter. And I did that for a while and they were very popular. And a friend of mine who had been a long-term technical writer said, you should look on this as a career because you have a good way of expressing things, of uh, explaining detail for a different audience, uh, sharp and funny and interesting. So why don't you look into it? And when I did, I discovered that, heck, I can do better than, than these instructions without any training right. because so many of them are written badly. So I got into the field and discovered, oh, that's, that's just for me. You're always learning. You have to think of different audiences. You're using your writing skills. You're uh, engaged in a lot of tools, desktop publishing, as well as some high-tech tools. So you're in a world that's always interesting, always challenging, and yet it helps to sharpen uh, some of your fiction writing skills as well. Uh, your editorial eye, your length, your deadlines, because writers do need, well, I need deadlines. <laughs> I work best when you say, I say, when do you want it by? Okay, here's what you can have by then. I can't write like other fiction writers, you know, the one book a year to contract. Oh, here's a contract here, write this book. Because I'm a firm believer in the muse. And while it doesn't come into play during my technical writing job, it does in fiction. And the muse comes by sometimes and says, no, no, you're not going to write this. You're going to write that. I'm like, but I'm working on this. It doesn't matter. You're going to write that. 
And so I have to. And it goes more in fits and spurts than the sit down every day and put your nose to the grindstone and do the 2,000 words. I do that at work, but I don't do that in my fiction writing. So there is that difference in the worlds. Well, you know, what's funny for me is I do technical writing in the insurance field. So I'm writing insurance textbooks and, you know, educational material. And what I've found is that, as you said, having to do deadlines, having to write to a word count, having to write to an outline has helped me with fiction. But I've found that the muse and the fiction stuff helps me with the insurance because as a storyteller, when I want to create an example, I can create examples for anything because I can tell stories. <laughs> I also, like you said, find a creative way to say things, but you do have to adapt your vocabulary and the things you talk to, which is sort of like in a book, having different characters, you know, they know your audience. So what I've found is that instead of now writing long, when I before I really got into the insurance writing, I'd write something fiction and it would be twice as long as it needed to be. Now, you tell me a word count and my first draft is going to be within 50 words of that word count. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes, I write short novels. I mean, uh, traditional publishing wants 80,000 word uh, mysteries. And I find most of those just bloated and padded beyond belief. And I'm like, where's the editing in this? They could cut this down. I do 50,000 word novels. Uh -huh. uh, even Neptune City came even shorter than that. But the thing is, it's tight. It's compact. It's a complete story. And there's nothing wasted. Like Elmore Leonard said, leave out the parts that people skip. That's right. And mystery writers don't want the fluff. I mean, somebody else, another, another genre, they might like all the setting and all the prose and the poetry and all that, but especially World certain building. kinds of books. If you're doing science fiction or fantasy, you need a great deal of world building and backstory because your world, you're presenting them with something unfamiliar. Right. And the mystery, all the tropes of the genre, all the themes are very familiar to people. You know, the mm -hmm. private detective office and the tall blonde walks in, boom, you know, they're there. They've seen it a hundred times. They're there. You know, the, uh, the poor schmuck who finds the body and then is accused of, uh, of killing the, uh, the victim, boom. You don't need as much world building and you can use shorthand right. in some of the things as long as you keep it interesting and engaging for the reader and don't leave things out. That's it. You have to give them what they want. And if you know what that is, it's a whole lot easier to do. There was one great thing from Hemingway, and I once described this to a non-writer, and he was just gobsmacked. He loved the concept. Uh, and one of the books, I think Dan Simmons, who was a big fan of Hemingway, talks about uh, Hemingway and the, the Japanese concept of being complete, but leaving something out, but yet you know it's complete. He says, there's a blue sky, and you present the blue sky but you present it in such a way that the readers know that there's a hawk there. And you never see the hawk, it's never mentioned, but the readers know it's there. And he did that beautiful short story where the two people are having a conversation, they never mention the thing, and the thing is something the reader knows and just this, wow. And I love doing that. I love letting the reader make those connections, connecting the dots, not explaining everything, but letting them go, oh, yeah. But that, that moment, because I love doing that in a story, of finding it out and going, I know where they're going with this, or I know what they're trying to say, even though they're not saying it, but they're leading me down and showing me where to go. Well, and don't you think too that every reader, I mean, we all have different perspectives and I can describe a character for one, one of the things I know a lot of people want to describe their characters, their physical qualities in great detail. My personal take is I don't want to do that because every reader is going to visualize the character differently. Like when I read Gone with the Wind, Scarlet and Rhett looked a certain way in my mind. And when I saw the movie, that wasn't them. And, you know, they had the same colors. So I think sometimes with certain things like describing people and settings and whatever, 
like you said, give them a little bit enough to form what it is they want to form. So yeah, they have to understand your message, but you also want them to have the experience that they want to have. True. I don't do a lot of physical descriptions for the most part. James Lee Burke goes into great detail on the bad people in his stories. I mean, how they smell, how they look. I mean, you know, gritty microscopic detail. And I leave a great deal of that out. And again, using the shorthand, you know, tall, you know, oily slick back hair, a shark skin suit, you know, mm -hmm. menacing eye, something like that, but uh -huh. not a terrific amount. And so again, your reader's gonna build that the way they want. Now, another thing, now I'm an auditory person. A lot of readers are, okay, but a lot of readers aren't. And you, I know, have a lot to say about audiobooks and how a lot of writers need to have their books published in audiobooks. So why don't you share a little bit about that? Because I think that's something most of us don't know anywhere near as much about as we need to know. Yes, I actually uh, give talks on this and have done some, uh, you know, teaching and uh, workshops and how to produce audiobooks because it's getting to be almost a third of the market now and there are so many writers who do not have their books in audio which is a tremendous medium for more people to access your story when i was commuting i'm you know popping in a book both going to work and coming back so there's an hour and a half a day plus that i'm accessing stories that i would not be able to have the time to do otherwise i don't have as much time to read anymore and so it's vital to me to try to keep up and discover these writers and their stories, which are just wonderful. In audio, sometimes it sounds so good. I was an early adopter of that, you know, back in getting my early books out into that. Mm -hmm. I made that a condition when I worked with a publisher. And now that I'm on my own, it's perfectly easy. Through the Audible program, you do not need upfront money to produce an audiobook. In the past, you had to have somebody do that for you. It used to cost several thousand dollars for a narrator, one to $200 an hour, production costs, the distribution costs, the uh, creation of the audiobook. And now ACX does that for you. And you just split the royalties with the narrator and Audible and boom, it's up on Amazon right beside your print and eBooks. Uh -huh. And there are so many traditional authors that cannot get because the traditional publishing company tied up the rights even if they never produce that audiobook they want that right to do it if it becomes popular so authors can't get their books out as audiobooks i've got all my books out on audio i've got three in production right now so it would be good for backlists then right authors who have oh, a big backlist oh goodness the thing is companies understand the value of those rights and intellectual property and they don't want to give them up without a fight so yeah. if you can get them back, you should absolutely do it. And I counsel people, I mean, whether you're doing it with ACX or any of the other companies, get your books into audio and get it out. I found, I've sold, you know, many, many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of audio copies that I wouldn't have through other mediums, through print and ebook. Uh, so I found great new fans. I actually had one book that stopped the U.S. mail because the mailman was listening to one of my books and had to pause and he had to run out and tell me, how good it was, how how great the story was sounding, but he wasn't at a Wi-Fi spot, so he had to leave his route to find a Wi-Fi spot to send that message. And I go, hey, my book is so good it stopped the mail. <laughs> I think that's a really good point to make because no matter how much we think we know about the publishing industry or how much we know, there's always more to learn. And I know you have a really good story about learning how to write from a master. So why don't you tell that story? Yes, well, I've always been interested in stories. I mean, you know, being in scouts and sitting around a campfire, you know, you would tell stories. Uh, when you're out camping, when you're out with friends, you tell stories to each other. 
And although I, you know, scribbled a few things down, it was never a driven kind of focused idea of moving forward with that. It was just a scattershot kind of thing of, I've got a lot of ideas. I like to build worlds. I like to create stories. And then I got to college and through the greatest stroke of luck, Stephen King came back for one year to teach his writer in residence back at his alma mater, which is the University of Maine. I got to learn directly from the master. I mean, we're sitting there in his living room and he's, you know, editing one of my stories and I go, this is the greatest thing ever. He's so <laughs> inspirational. He's so knowledgeable. He's so passionate about the work. I mean, after 50 years plus, he still writes every day. The man is incredible and he's still got stories to tell even after all that time. You know, you've read 75 books of his and you're constantly amazed that there's more stories he can come up with. This is great. That really put me on the path because he, he forced us to write a lot, forced us. <laughs> uh, he showed us the way and he said, I want you to, to write 25,000 words in a semester. Now to people that hadn't written 2,500 words in a year, this was like ridiculous. But the thing is it focuses you, put, it puts you down to the habit. I've got to write, I've got to write, I've got to get the story out. Doesn't matter if it's perfect. It's kind of like NaNoWriMo where you try to get 50,000 word uh, novel in one month. When you're not used to it, it forces you to produce. And when you do that, you access the subconscious brain, which is where writers really need to go from. The conscious brain is too much of an editor and it cuts out so much of the good stuff. When you access the subconscious, you go down to the myth pool of the race. You go down to that dark, deep lake where the scary stuff is and you dip a bucket in and you bring that back up. And man, some of the things that come from there are so surprising. And learning to do that was the thing I think that tipped the scales. And then from then on, I said, you know what? I wanna start working towards being a writer. Well, life got in the way and I only got my first book, uh, fiction book, my novel published nine years ago. So in nine years, I've got like over 21 books uh, published now between novels and short story collections and nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And that's what you can do when this stuff percolates for so long. Well, and I think too, which brings us back full circle to the technical writing, it doesn't matter what you write so long as you write, because it keeps that unconscious part of your brain, which is really where the fuel comes from. I read a book called Writing the Natural Way by Gabriel Rico, and it talks about that. It talks about how you can access that right side of your brain and all the creative stuff. And again, it doesn't matter what you're writing. A lot of people think, oh, well, if I'm writing technical stuff or I'm writing nonfiction, it's not the same. And I don't buy that. I, if you're writing and you're telling a story, even if it's just explaining how to access a particular function on a computer in your technical writing, you're still creating a reality or a perspective for your reader. It's interesting that words are symbols. And with those symbols, we manipulate those symbols to create emotion in people we haven't even met. I explained this in a course I taught at the Cape Cod Writers Conference. We're magicians. We're like <laughs> Doctor Who. We move through time and space. We are talking to generations that haven't even been born yet. We're talking to people in other lands. We're manipulating their emotions and their feelings and their thoughts into shaping that into a place that we want them to be. I mean, what power, what amazing, beautiful power. And we can create those spells and see the spell books of every other magician that's come before us because we just read their books and we see how they've done it. 
Well, I think it also helps. Doesn't it motivate you to know that you're doing more than just putting a word on a piece of paper or typing? You realize that there's a bigger thing. You know, this is just one step in a process. This is our shot at immortality. There you go. It really is. I mean, this is how we can speak to people throughout all time. I mean, how incredible is that? This is also true. <laughs> We're very, very fortunate. And I appreciate you joining me today. People can find out more about you and your books at your website at daletphillips.com. And that's Phillips with two L's. Yes. And a um, T. Yep. <laughs> and a T. Okay. And thank you for joining me today. I hope you'll come back, especially when you have a new release. Let us know and we'll announce it to the I've world. New releases all the time. That's the great thing. I just got two new books out, two short story collections. And the print just showed up today. They're now out in print as well as ebook. Oh. And the audiobooks are in production for both of them as Ooh. well. So, what are the titles so that people can go find them? Deadly Encounters, which okay. is three uh, short stories of Zach Taylor, who is my series character. There's six uh, novels in that series. And The Return of Fear, which is uh, five scary stories. All righty. Plenty of time for Halloween, uh, both for about the price of a cup of coffee. Oh, there as an you ebook. go. So, yeah, you can't go wrong. Dale T. Phillips, thank you so much. We'll be talking with you again. Thank you, Linda. Yes, absolutely.